Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. This week I have Chris Lehane, a longtime Democratic operative, spin machine, spin master, an SVP at Airbnb in charge of policy and communications, and now the chief strategy officer at Han Ventures, a top crypto firm. I had him on the episode to talk about the state of the crypto winter and specifically what's going on in Washington, where the regulatory environment is with crypto. We also had fun and dug into more theoretical stuff about how Democrats should be trying to regulate tech and even speculated a little bit about the Republican primary. Give it a listen. Chris Lane, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you, man. You know, we're doing this with a couple of days left in summer, and I'm hoping at least professionally, this will be the highlight of my suburb. Cool. Well, we got to know each other while you were at Airbnb, and I might touch on that sort of sure. later in the podcast, but you're deep in the crypto world. Now, I haven't really caught up with you since. And I know, you know we're overdue for our coffee. In yeah, San exactly. Francisco. So here we are. Everybody yes. gets to sit in on it. And obviously, you know, you have deep experience from Bill Clinton campaigns and White House experience, and then sort of deep in tech policy world and deep still in sort of to what the Democrats are doing. Now, I imagine you're spending more time with Republicans also these days. Do you see yourself as talking to both sides of the aisle? I do at some level, although both it's because of where I have, you know, deep pre-existing relationships. And also because I think it's ultimately what the space needs if it wants to get regulatory clarity and certainty. You know, I do spend a disproportionate amount of my time on the Democratic side. That's where I come out of. And, you know, we can get into this a little bit more. But coming from Democratic politics, I was actually attracted to this space because of the small de-democratizing. Right capacity potential of the underlying technology. But the short answer to your question is, you know, when I s transitioned from Airbnb over to the fund, which would have been March of last year, so 2022, yeah. you know, sort of felt like crypto as a political issue was what I would call pre-partisan, hmm. meaning it had really been yet to be defined one way or the other politically. It's neither D nor R. On the natural, I think there was a particularly given how crypto had been developed, there was a bit of a libertarian element to it. It was fairly undefined. We just saw, what, two committees in the House. Yes, I'm going to get to that. I was, that's okay. where I was taking okay. this. That's where okay. I was taking okay. this. Okay. That's where I was taking this. Going back to that march, right, I thought the challenge is if you really want to have something passed, right, almost nothing gets passed in this day and age because of just the broader dysfunctionality that exists in our political system, right. in particular at the federal level. Amongst that, the elements that drive that lack of functionality is it's a hyperpartisan era. Everything immediately becomes partisanized. Right. And then it becomes really difficult, you know, when you have a Senate and a House, they're both pretty closely divided and are flip-flopping every two years in terms of who controls what for anything to ultimately pass. And so I do think, you know, for this sector to ultimately get that regulatory clarity that it, it is seeking, it does need to get this issue at some level to something that's closer to a bipartisan. To be clear on that, like, let's be right. really clear. You know, I am not necessarily suggesting, you know, that Elizabeth Warren is going to come out tomorrow and endorse right. <laughs> crypto. Well, she was ranked like the worst by some you know, <laughs> right, right. crypto but world. I, but I do think what you saw, you know, from the vote that took place on the House Financial Services Committee and, and the Ag Committee, and this was a vote that took place towards the end of July, for those who aren't following it that closely, there were two votes. There was a vote on stable coins and a vote on sort of an overarching cryptocurrency sort of legislative framework. And what you saw was, yes, you know, generally Republicans strongly supported it. 
But you did get a core group of Democrats who did support the legislation coming out of committee. That sets up the potential, and I stress the potential, not the, you know, you have to translate this into an actual real vote, for there to be, you know, a decent number of Democrats. They're not going to be the majority of the Democrats in the House caucus, but enough Democrats who support it, you know, in a similar ratio as you saw in the House Financial Services vote. So that it emerges from the House as not purely, you know, a Republican versus right. Democrat issue. And so that's the political reality, I think, of where you need to get this. There is sort yeah. of the Democratic strain of like, you know, Gillibrand, I think, is clearly yep. pretty pro-crypto. And like, you can imagine this sort of like, you know, the Democrats who had to support Wall Street or like who defended industry or a core American competitiveness and still believe in business in some ways are like friendlier I think you have that, you know, and I had a lot more hair when I could say this, but, you know, a Clinton Democrat, right, that, you know, you would think of, and again, I'm not sure these terms really apply in the day and age that we speak in, but more of a sort of center, you know, business creates growth, business creates opportunities, how we think about our global competitiveness, you know, that type of a Democrat. But I also think more so if you look at the folks in the House and even on the Senate side who are Democrats, who support this, it actually, I think, breaks down less along sort of the Clinton Democrat versus, you know, the current sort of, you know, progressive Democrat line yeah. and much more along generational lines. I mean, if you look at that vote that took place in the House Financial Services Committee and even on the Ag Committee, because the bill came through both of those committees, I yeah. mean, a little detailed here, the Democrats who vote for it, you know, by and large broke down not on ideological grounds within the Democratic Party, but more so on generational lines. And so you had you know, Democrats who'd been more recently elected to Congress, who are younger, who I think intuitively get the issue a little bit differently. I mean, we have the second oldest Congress right. in and, and, the history of the Republic right now, right? And Which is a whole separate sort of issue we can get into. Extrapolate out what yeah. you're saying. You know, we have, what, one of the oldest president of all time, and he's been pretty quiet on, on these issues, right? Though his SEC chairman has been very active. Yeah, and we can certainly get into that. You know, you obviously had, well, not maybe not obviously, last March, April, I'm trying to remember the exact time period of 2022, you know, you did have the Biden administration issue an executive order, and that executive order both extolled the virtues, potential of decentralized computing and the role that cryptocurrencies could play both in distributing economics, but also in U.S. economic competitiveness and national security issues, but also called out the need for consumer protections and regulations to make sure that it was being managed responsibly. So they did put that out. Now, I would also agree it has not been exactly an administration that is out there <laughs> yeah. leading the charge on this, which I think has seeded ground where there basically to be this fight between the CFTC right. and the SEC, basically taking two completely contradictory right. perspectives. And I say this as a Democrat who thinks that Joe Biden has, by and large, done a really good job in a really difficult time period for our country. But we are almost 24 years into the 21st century. And I think whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I think amongst the challenges our country is facing is, you know, we still are effectively operating under a, what I would call a New Deal sort of paradigm or structure for government when, you know, society has changed a lot. And in particular, our economy has changed pretty dramatically. And how do we begin to sort of reimagine, you know, the role of government 
particularly for someone who is a Democrat and does right. ultimately believe that the Democratic Party is at its best when it is standing for and growing a middle class. And how do we do that you know, in a totally new type of economic context? And so when you talk about the age that we see, you know, and I'll speak to Congress, again, the second oldest Congress in the history of the Republic, you know, as you get older, and not like I say this as someone who's in his mid-50s, right? How you reimagine the world and re-envision the world. I mean, there's all sorts of studies that just show that becomes harder the older that you get. And I think amongst the challenges that we face as a country is beginning to really rethink, you know, what is that relationship between the national government, local government, state governments, you know, in the digital age? All right. Well, to stay on the democratic point, yeah. because I'm very interested in that, and I want to sort of outline the crypto part of it here too. Sure. But you know, I work for the Obama campaign as I didn't even want to say that. I'll let you say that. I'm thank open you. about it. I'm independent. Okay. Like that was, you know, I'm very <laughs> clear. Like I'm an opinionated reporter now. You know, I feel like the challenge is sort of like a Democrat and pro government sort of person is that the tech policy strategy is often to move fast or like especially with Uber. I mean, I think Airbnb to some degree and crypto. It's like and not even necessarily with policy in mind. You know, these businesses just want to grow fast. So they establish a reality before there's a regulatory regime. And then even, so someone like myself who believes in tech, but also in regulation, mm -hmm. then gets sort of frustrated that the government, by the time they're coming, consumer behavior is already set and there's a certain fatalism to it. On the other hand, you don't really want government to act so quickly that people aren't even allowed to innovate, right? I mean, we're sort of seeing this question with AI right now where, the Democrats have sort of learned this lesson over and over again. And they're like, oh, man, we actually need to jump really fast before anything forms, because once it does, it's so hard to regulate. On that very broad point, I'm curious what you think, how the Democrats should respond to this problem of how quick to move. You're articulating a version of what I was just sort of alluding to, right. which is structurally, how do we think about how government can appropriately intersect with the economy and specifically technology in post-industrial age and in this you know, digital world that we live in. And you know, I certainly do not believe that the structures that currently exist, and it's really easy to diagnose this, it's a lot harder to come up with the solutions, you know, were designed for a different age. I mean, you can take a big step back and I'll do a short version of this, but you know, when our country was first formed, Alexis de Tocqueville does a great book on democracy in America and, you know, talks about this idea that, you know, at that time, people just thought democracy was scary. They didn't think it was going right. to be able to succeed. In many ways, similar to how people talk about some of the technology that's emerging now. And, you know, his book, at least the first version of it, there are two versions of it. The first one's a little bit more optimistic than the second one. But the first edition, you know, talked about the fact that, you know, the U.S. had basically created an entity that existed between sort of government and business. And that was civil society that almost served as like the regulator, if you think about an engine right. or a controller, if you think about an engine for democracy to really work. You get to the 1930s, the Great Depression, post-World War One, and that begins to break down. Like civil society is not really serving the function in many respects because you've got this new industrial economy that's not the same as an agricultural age. Right economy and FDR steps in with a vision of a new deal, which was a large government basically stepping in for what had been civil society. You know, as we stand here today, I mean, I remember I was, you know, as we've touched on working with 
Bill Clinton, President Clinton, who I thought was an awesome president. And he gave this famous speech, you know, the era of big government is over. Right. But what comes next? Right. Right. And I still don't think we have answered that question of what is our structure and vision for government that actually allows democracy to flourish and deliver for its people in this current economic age. And my short version, and I'm happy to go deeper on this, of where we need to get is, I think for the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, we've sort of been operating under this paradigm of a public sector and a private sector. Yeah. And sometimes you get public-private partnerships, right? That was the you know, concept that you heard about. And I actually think we're going to need to design stuff that is a little bit more fully integrated. Hmm. You know, something along the lines of you know, a common sector. And what that common sector ultimately is able to do if done well. And by the way, this is a little bit of the vision that we had at Airbnb, frankly. But what it is able to do well is exactly what you were just talking about, which is it allows innovation to happen. It allows it to happen quickly. But it also allows government and really by extension, the public to have a much bigger voice hmm. on how that technology is evolving, being deployed, and assuring that it is actually optimizing for the broader good. Now, that's really utopian, probably, at some level well, to, I have say. to say. I was worried that you'd been a crypto for a year now, and you're going to be like, oh, it's DeFi. We need to like put everything on the blockchain, and we're going to solve it. No, no, no. But you know, where I come in on this, on, on the crypto piece in particular, is I think, you know, right, we're going through some massive technological shifts. You've got crypto, you've got quantum, you've got enormous stuff happening in biotech, right. obviously AI. And back to both points, I think both of us have made, like, I don't feel particularly good about our government's ability to be able to effectively address us. I mean, I remember back in the spring, I spent a day and a half in DC, the White House on the Hill, talking about some of these things with some friends and other folks. And, you know, and the government's approach was very much looking through the rearview mirror. Yeah. Here's what we missed with quote unquote web two. And so here's how we have to approach right. these next big technologies. And I came back to San Francisco and I was at a small conference where you had folks like Sam Altman from, from OpenAI. You had the woman from Berkeley who's in charge of the CRISPR project. Mm. You had someone talking about driverless cars. You had someone talking about crypto. And they were looking through the front window right. 10 years down the road, right? right? And there was no one sort of thinking about, okay, where are we now and how do we get there? Right. And really no process or structure to do it and was just really struck by that and do think we ultimately are going to need some of these new structures in place. And by the way, like, it's really easy to say, as I said earlier, but really hard to do. I mean, you look at the history, right? Like we got you know, the first version of our democracy only after a revolution, right? Right. The New Deal came in place after a world war and the Great Depression. You know, typically you don't get these massive structural changes absent some real existential crisis. What's the phrase you're using? Common good? The common com sector. Common sector. Is there an example entity or like how would you structure one? Or is this, I mean, crypto, I can think of like, oh, well, we should, you know, have a crypt. Well, it's not really a company, but you could have a government controlled coin or something like that. Yeah, you could have, I mean, you could think about DAOs and, right. you know, governments putting certain requirements around what a DAO should include in its decision making hmm. could be an example of that on the crypto side, right? So it's not government doing it, but government building incentives. You can imagine if, you know, to get approved by, you know, a government, right? A government agency, whether it's a CFT, SEC, or a whole brand new agency, 
right? That you could build certain, the government could identify certain incentives where the jobs take place, where the economics go, yeah. who participates in it, right? And those basically get built into the DAO and even the coding that would go into the DAO as a way to think about the distribution of the economics and decisions. You could even imagine, you know, thinking about that from a sustainability climate perspective in terms of how some of the technology works. I think some early examples that you can maybe point to outside of crypto. And by the way, this is amongst the reasons why I was attracted to crypto. Like I think yeah. the structure of crypto lends itself to supporting some version of a common sector. But I think the two examples, and the first one, I think people will roll their eyes when I say, but bear with me a little bit, you know, was when then Facebook, now Meta, you know, set up, it's effectively its court system, right? Now, I think if Facebook had done that proactively and not from a deep, dark right. hole that they had put themselves <laughs> right, right. in, they'd have gotten a lot more credit for it, right. right? But that was an example. And imagine taking that a step further where, you know, does the FCC have some participatory exactly. role in that yeah. or some agency? Or there are legal some, standards that if you right, fail, right, that you get That gets built into that, or, right? Yeah, but the, yeah, yeah. Facebook is paying for it. Right. Facebook is staffing it, but it has legitimacy and credibility and people have real transparency into what it's right. doing. And, you know, this is somewhat self-serving, but at Airbnb, you know, amongst the things we ultimately got to was building in and providing local government cities APIs so that right. the city's pipes were built right into the Airbnb tech. And so therefore cities had the ability to regulate and enforce their laws in real time, right through the Airbnb right. platform itself, right? And so, as you know, from having covered Airbnb, one of the issues was, well, we have these laws, but really difficult for the cities to right. enforce them. They can't even see what's going And Airbnb certainly used that to advantage. It's like, we don't have to be cooperative, but we can be. That's right. And ultimately it served as a really powerful tool. Like there's no question that Airbnb building those APIs made it more effective for cities right. to be able to enforce against right. Airbnb. And in almost all these situations, the company took a haircut, but the long-term benefit of being in a positive, constructive relationship with the city right. ultimately actually was a real driver of sustained long-term growth because you took heat down, people had visibility, hosts were then able to come and sign on in a way that you know yeah. made it a lot easier, right? All of those things. So again, those are just sort of right. two, I think, you know, maybe rudimentary or crude or early stage examples of, right. of what you could imagine. I mean, think about driverless cars and how this could all work, right? There is always <laughs> this sort of industry wants to say, oh, we can self-regulate and that will replace government. And that is not new and can sometimes be a dodge. And that's the critique, obviously, of Facebook. So do you have a quick response to that? Or I mean, in some ways, that's what you're proposing, right? Facebook is an early version. Airbnb went a step further and actually right. allowed governments to be able to use their technology to right. make their enforcement better, right. right? I think if Facebook had gone proactively and right. built in that additional component... Right. Yeah, it's like feeding data. Yeah, that's right. definitely beyond. That, you're helping right. the government actually do a better job of coming. Yes, and taking direct feedback from the government right. about how this can work better. Okay, so crypto. Yep. I mean, at the broadest level, and you know, I'm not deep in it, and I don't think you know many of our listeners, even sort of in venture world, I feel like it's like, oh, it's sort of down there in a winter. Like we're paying attention to AI right now. Yep. So I think part of the goal with this episode is just to like make sure those people sort of know what's going on. I mean, on the broadest level, there's still this question of whether tokens are securities, right? Mm -hmm. And part of what's going on is that Gary Gensler at the SEC is going after Coinbase and Binance. And as part of those cases, sort of regulating through legal action to say that they're securities. And then on the flip side, you've got 
these, you know, bills coming through the House, the Republican-controlled House, that want to make crypto tokens regulated through the Commodities Futures Trading Board, right? Which is seen as is that the, did I get the acronym right? Yeah, CFTC, Commodities Trading Commission. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, well, by the way, all legacies of the New Deal that we've already talked I know. about. But yes. Well, we've already sort of alluded that it's going through the Agriculture Committee, which is <laughs> yes. like, as, it's like always a good sign. Yeah. And so, you know, the crypto world seems to want to avoid, especially this hostile SEC, move over to the CFTC and avoid being a security. Do you think that's a fair gloss of the situation? And what else would you add to that piece? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think because of just the nature of the legislative process, it's, you know, effectively become, you know, a binary choice as it go to the CFTC or SEC. I think, you know, there's versions of this where some of it, it goes, does go to the SEC and some does go to the CFTC. So it's not like they all go to one or they all go to the other, depending a little bit on the attributes of what the actual coin Looks like what I would emphasize, though, just, you know, because we're trying to have, you know, make this conversation as interesting as possible. That's ultimately very much of a looking through the rearview mirror. Yeah. Right. Which is I would argue that, you know, these tokens are neither a commodity nor a security, but something that is just really totally different. And that, you know, if we really wanted to reimagine or re-envision, you know, how the world could work or how this particular sector could work. You could be approaching this in a way that really looks to lever optimize for the opportunity while really putting strong regulations in to help protect consumers. That's not where the conversation is. That's not the right. reality, right? The reality is that this is going through, you know, a legislative process and that legislative process is seeking to build on existing structures for something that is just, you know, very different and very new. And so as a result of that reality, Right. It is this whole debate about whether it is a commodity or security. And what the current legislation does, yes, most of it, it pushes into the commodities range, right? There will still be things that could have attributes where it ends up becoming a security. How bad is the current situation for crypto? I mean, one name we haven't brought up that obviously is huge, especially in the democratic perception of this is Sam Bankman Fried, right? Yep. Sam Bankman Fried at FTX was doing a lot of the heavy lifting for, you know, crypto with Democrats by yep. sort of cozying up to them and sort of speaking to their values and all that. And then when FTX sort of proved to be what, you know, what seems to be a sham, it's really embarrassing for those electives and teaches them sort of a very negative lesson about crypto. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the pre-partisan to the bipartisan, I thought the space was actually on a pretty good path as reflected in the Biden executive order and that the FTX, SBF explosion, however you want to describe it, debacle royale, you know, has, you know, with a huge impact on that, a huge impact on the ability to get this to a bipartisan place and, you know, a huge impact on momentum for regulations. It unleashed the skeptics and the cynics to be even, you know, more forceful yeah. in their skepticism and cynicism. And, you know, if you came at the space with questions and skepticism, right, that was certainly a pretty powerful proof point for you and so somewhat understandable for those who are you know, genuinely coming at this with integrity and questioning it. I think there are some others who are just, you know, trying to jump on the issue. But yeah, no, it had a huge, a huge impact both on the timeline and, you know, and how people perceive it. And that's, you know, that's a hole that ultimately the sector needs to be able to dig out. Now, you're asking a bigger question of where things are in crypto right now right. or Web3, depending on how you want to define it. I think about it as decentralized computing, but 
I think, first of all, this is a space that has gone in cycles. And yeah. you've heard a little bit about this, but for those who haven't, there's crypto winters, crypto summer, or sometimes crypto springs and crypto, right. crypto falls. And that has really been the history of this sector. And there is a specific reason for that, which I think is different maybe than some other technological eras, which is crypto basically emerged all at once as sort of like a technological sector. Whereas in the past, for the most part, as new technology has evolved and come out, it's typically been much more sequential, right? right? Like I go back to the early 90s and, you know, network computing, you know, which had been a goal since the end of World War II, but there had never been the technology to allow for protocols to allow for, you know, a computer right. in San Francisco to talk to a computer in New York and do it in a safe and secure way, right? You got HTTP, you got other protocols that came out and really made that happen. But imagine if like suddenly the internet had shown up and there was cats videos and right. porn stuff and all right. of that happening and it was available to everyone at the same time. And, you know, and that's a little bit, you know, the, the opportunity and challenge on the crypto side and amongst the reasons why you get a little bit of this, of the cycles. Yeah, I would of also course, say- Of course, that sort of crypto is set up in a way to front load the financial reward. And that, that is sometimes viewed as a feature. And, 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 and a challenge, the, right? It's right, like two sides, right. no, no pun intended, right. two sides of the Bitcoin, I guess, or right. like, you know, pick your currency. Right. You also have had it sort of emerge, you know, in a time period where, as you know, having covered the tech space, you know, money was effectively free, right? right? When it's different today than it was, you know, pre-March of 2022. And, you know, and so this particular cycle, you know, you get crypto, you saw the whole tech cycle go up and then go down. Crypto is probably the sort of frothiest, the end of that tail, right? So right. it in particular has been impacted by that swing. The one thing I would, or I guess two things I would really just focus on is every time it's had these cycles, the water line gets higher and higher, right? So today, you know, more than one in five Americans hold a cryptocurrency, you know, there's 400 million, more than 400 million people around the world, you know, who hold a digital currency, right? That's a significant, yeah, I mean, I, I've never had, I'm an amateur, point. I like yeah. to fashion myself, Eric, as an amateur historian. I'm not sure whether I rise to that level or not, but you've never had in, you know, in human history, currencies created at scale that do not involve a sovereign entity or the government, right? From a societal historic perspective, it's an amazing thing to think that you've actually created currencies they're based on mathematical formulas that drive people to people trust over those currencies. The other thing I would just point out is the rest of the world is in a really different place right. than the US. You basically look at every major financial capital or aspiring financial capital in the world, and they're all moving way ahead of the US to embrace the technology, whether it's the UK Right. You know, I think even this week, I think there's some additional activity happening there where they're, you know, putting in place a pretty robust regulatory framework that does address consumer issues, but also is designed mm -hmm. because they want London to be a center of this. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Brazil, Singapore, the EU. I mean, these are all places, Australia, Japan, hmm. that have moved well ahead of the U.S. on putting your regulations in place with an understanding that, you know, crypto is going to be a significant part, you know, of the financial world as we move forward and wanting to make sure 
And in many respects, they took lessons from the 90s from the U.S. that the U.S. currently hasn't right. applied to itself, the, right? Which is right. U.S. 96. I mean, I was part of this, put in the Telco Act, right? That set the U.S. to become the center of the digital economy. Right. The rest of those places missed that, or a lot of them missed it. And, you know, they are seeing that this is going to be a big part of the future and wanting to make sure they have a piece of it. What's the sort of worst case scenario here for crypto? I mean, it's crazy to me that Coinbase is allowed to go public. And then the government says, actually, even though the SEC approved it, we can now sue you for your core business violating SEC rules. On a business that hasn't changed at all since it was approved. Right, right. I mean, there's nothing different today from Coinbase than was in their S1, you know, the document that they show that needs to be reviewed. The government's sort of argument is that they should be allowed to take all the legal time they have to sort of come to a view. I don't know. Yeah, right. But you look at the mission statement and purpose of the SEC, right? They're supposed to be there to help protect consumers. You know, they allowed or they at least reviewed and then, you know, S1 went forward and, you know, those shares were offered to the public and nothing has changed, you know, since then. Also amongst the SEC's mission and purpose is to help support an economy where more people are able to participate in the economics of our country. Right. You know, and today, 10% of the country owns 90% of the wealth. Like if I was the SEC and you really want to take some big swings at things, like I would focus more on that (laughs) than, you know, a technology that was allowed to go forward and where nothing has changed and a technology that ultimately is actually trying to update the financial system to make it more fair. Right. I find it very hard to believe that like Bitcoin or like Ethereum or that they're going to be like illegal in the United States, right? Well, you obviously have a court rule, right, as a district court, but you know from the Southern District of New York, and you know, and a well-respected Obama-appointed judge who had made you know points that were adjacent to what you were just saying, right, in terms of you know, particularly on the security commodities issue, and just given the scale of people and. Now, the, saying the court meant, found it was a commodity, right? Yeah, right. But you had mentioned something earlier that I think is relevant to this, which is amongst the challenges that government faces, particularly at the federal level, is that you get consumer adoption of a new technology, right. and then the government has a challenge of how they keep I mean, you know, this is an example of that, right? You right. live in a time period where 80% of the country does not believe the financial system works for them. Right. You look at the folks who own digital assets, you know, it over-indexes on cohorts of the population that in particular have been impacted by a financial system that doesn't work for them, right? Younger people, people of color, people who make less than $100,000. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is the fact that over 60% of the folks, this is from data from a year ago, so it may have evolved a little bit, but directionally, I think it's pretty powerful, which is you know, over 60% of the people who own digital assets voted for Joe Biden for president. Hmm. It tells you a little about who they are and you know what their values right. and politics are. Right. I get the strategy of like do what your constituents want or like they have crypto, so vote for them. I mean, the crypto industry at its core just like hasn't delivered a great case study for why people should cheer for it yet. I mean, I'm sure you're gonna come up with a couple, but there have been so many frauds. There's so much financial speculation. I feel like Part of the reason for the delay on the side of the government is just like, oh, well, maybe we should give it time to see if anything really good does come out of it. And then that's why stuff like FTX is Mm -hmm. so 
hard for crypto because it's like, oh man, this was sort of one of the things you were holding up. What's worth saving? I mean, I think the fact that you have you know more than 400 million people around the world, 50 plus million in this country, you know, does speak to the fact, I mean, consumers do get to vote with their wallet at right. some level, right? Yeah. And with their feet at some level. And, you know, even the polling I've done in this country and stuff that we've seen from around the world, like amongst the reasons folks are buying it is because they are using things like stablecoin as a hedge against inflation. You see right. that globally, right? You see people wanting to use it. You know, we looked at voters in Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, over 40% of the folks who own digital assets said they bought them because they wanted to help them be able to do remittances, right? These are immigrant families who are sending money back to, you know, relatives and family members in different parts of the world where they're able to do it a lot quicker for a lot less. Those are still just early versions and, you know, and examples. But I do think when you get people at that scale using it, right, they're obviously finding some utility and they're using right. it despite the fact that it's very janky, right. very hard to use, right? It's not easy. It's really complicated. And these are not engineers who are using it, right? They're figuring out how to use it because they're so dissatisfied with what the current option is for them. Now, everything you said, I just want to be clear, like everything that you said about the scams, about the utility, yeah, that's amongst the challenges. It comes back to a little bit of, I mean, if the internet had just emerged and all people knew was that it was being used for cat videos and pornography, right? Like, and I do remember 2001, after the dot-com bomb, right. like, major articles and major publications like the New York Times, I'm doing this off the top of right. my head, so don't hold me to this exact title, <laughs> but the internet is dead. <laughs> right, right, right. Right? You know, AI was, you know, initially really pushed in the late 1960s. And then people said, well, you can't actually use, you know, right. great algorithms that can replicate neural networks. And then all of a sudden, you know, ChatGPT 3 or 3.5, you know, emerges and suddenly, you know, the world shifts right. in a pretty significant way. I think, you know, crypto has created a high challenge for itself. Maybe it's a high class challenge, yeah. which is it's all happened at the same time. Right. I will say as someone who's at a fund and, you know, looking at the projects out there, you know, that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on and at the early stage that really is looking at that infrastructure for what you call level two, the sort of the app, conventional language app level, hmm. you know, that then ultimately translates into a lot more utility. But I want to be clear. I do think that you are hitting on something that is a core challenge for the space. Right. How do you demonstrate utility for why this should matter to the world so that policymakers care about it, right? That's, I think, ultimately what you're getting, why the public, you know, more broadly cares about it. I do think the public is ahead of the policymakers on this, which is typically the case, because you wouldn't have that level of engagement unless people are finding real value for it and seeing it as a solution. Are there pieces of Crypto Web 3 that Han Ventures won't invest in because of policy concerns? Or how much are you letting sort of your policy expertise influence your investing decisions? It's a great question. So we do both an accelerator fund, right? And then a, an early stage fund. You know, and we have a rubric that we use for you know, when we make a decision to invest. And one of the key elements or criteria in that rubric is does the founder, does the company, does the leadership team, does the project understand that you know, policy is going to be a very important issue? They don't necessarily have to have all the answers, right? Because some of this technology is so forward-looking. It's difficult to sit there you know, with a, you know, a founding team of three or four to be able to right. answer where they're going to be in two years. But they have to understand that they are going to need 
you know, to manage for that and build with that in mind. Yeah. And if we do not feel comfortable that they don't have an appreciation for that, then that is certainly a criteria that would block us from making an investment. And without naming names, because I know you'll ask me that if I, after the following sentence, we have made a number of decisions where we did not invest because we were ultimately concerned about sensitivity and understanding that these are issues that need to be navigated and done in appropriate ways. Well, yeah, because there's certainly a strain of crypto person who's like anti-government regulate. So it's not as- I mean, think of Katie Hahn, right? Katie right, is right. the founder of this right. fund, right. right? As you know, she was right. you know, a long time, very high profile prosecutor right. to the Justice right. Department. And she joined Coinbase, you know, as a board member early on. And look, I think, a, you know, a very receptive founder and Brian Armstrong and the executive team, but certainly was a major voice about the fact that, you know, Coinbase should work within the legal system, even right. if that meant it was going to impact, you know, its overall short-term growth. And, you know, you stand here today, yes, Coinbase is in litigation with the SEC, but it certainly is a company that went through the public process, certainly a company that seeks to work within the regulatory framework, you know, particularly when it's understandable, you know, just even I think in the last couple of weeks has gotten, you know, approvals for some initiatives, you know, through that process. And I think, is positioned for long-term growth because it made that decision early on to work within the system. And in fact, I think is understood to be in that position. What's the state of actual venture funds, like risk exposure for the product? Like, you know, particularly, I guess, token purchases, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been looks at, yeah, firms investing in, I guess I'm going to blur the boundaries here, like ICOs and tokens. And then in some cases, sort of selling out. I don't know. Do you think that is sort of safe? Are you still investing those types of things? What's your view on that? So we're not a hedge fund. Let's be clear about that. And I know you know that, but just in case anyone's out there, you know, we are a venture fund and, you know, our LPs understand that we're investing for the long term. And I'll get even more specifically to your token question in a second. But just as a little background, you know, we raised our fund in March of 2022 in the midst of, you know, the market going from that summer into a winter, right? Right in the midst right. of that correction. It's like 1.5 billion or something. 1.5, right. Yeah. But we were raising that in the midst of a volatile market. And the team, you know, led by Katie, really called out when we were doing, you know, those sessions with prospective LPs that we thought we were going to be entering, you know, a winter that this was going to be a long-term process and that, you know, venture, you know, by definition means that there's going to be you know, an element of risk, but obviously we built in a bunch of systems to make sure that we were optimizing for that long-term return. But we were very straightforward with folks and also made really clear, and I think this is a, an important point, that we were going to approach our investments knowing the time period that we're about to go into with real prudence. To take some of what you're saying, we're a venture fund. I yeah. think people take two things. You're saying, okay, we're long-term oriented. Yeah. Some people would say, oh, we're a venture fund. We only invest in equity. You know, yeah. we invest in companies. Maybe they do a token offering. Maybe they don't. That's part of their business. We yeah. invest in the equity. I take from your answer and just actually knowing the firm, yeah. obviously you do also invest oh, yeah. in tokens directly, often when you see those supporting the company, as you were just saying. Yeah. But I think there's a trying question to the ecosystem. because yes. tokens, unlike equity, you know, mm -hmm. like the rest of crypto are not well regulated. 
it exposes the venture fund itself to some of these same legal risks that the companies face. Like, how do you guys navigate that? Or what's your view yeah, I th- on you know, we, risk at the moment? It helps to have Katie over here <laughs> as someone who, you know, has A, been involved with the space from the really right. beginning. B, obviously, is extremely sophisticated on how government agencies think about these things. And C, we're able to take, you know, that information and be able to, you know, do the public and private tokens in a way that, you know, we know is really, certainly have the, you know, all reason to believe is as responsible as anyone could be. It was part of our value proposition. Right. You know, I think, frankly, for those LPs, you know, who looked around and, you know, look, as things turned out, we've touched on this with FTX and some others, you know, has, you know, people are right to be sensitive to some of the folks who are in the space. And, you know, part of our value proposition is that we're going to take a, a very responsible approach in terms of how we deploy our capital and how we think about those regulatory and policy issues in that context. I mean, how do you think, you know, Solana, which is, you know, a currency, was a case where it seemed like a lot of venture funds sort of got early access, the price drives up, you know, they cash out at some point and eventually the price falls. Like, I, I don't know, like, do you, I mean, then there are very different examples where like there are companies that have valuable tokens that never produce sort of the underlying thing. Yeah. And at some point firms decide they don't believe in the value anymore. So they sell out. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'll just say that, you know, there is a pump and dump type accusation to certain crypto projects yeah, I don't know. What's your view on those? Actually, I think it relates back to one of your earlier questions about you know how elected officials and governments think about this. I mean, as a Democrat, it strikes me as interesting that Democrats are not necessarily leading on actual putting it in place like regulations from a legislative perspective right. to actually build all these consumer protections right. in. Because I do think the whole space would be better off if we are building in those types of consumer protections. Sure, we as a fund, you know, apply our own, you know, that effectively is seeking to make sure we're protecting and doing it in a responsible, smart way. But the whole space would be better off and you would avoid and mitigate, you know, future FTXs or future pump and dump schemes as you've described it. You know, if there are really clear lines out there about what you know, what you don't know. Like I actually think that there's incredibly powerful ways for tokens to serve as a much more small d democratizing distributive economic tool, you know, if you're someone out there who's participating in a chain, you know, and you get tokens in return for being a validator on that, or you get tokens in return for building a really interesting project on that, right? You're getting the direct economics for your IP, right? right. For your work. You know, imagine a world where you know, people are able to actually really own a piece of what their actual labor produces. You know, that's just a completely different way of thinking about the relationship between management and labor. And I think right. these tokens really, and so this is a long-winded, and you can see I'm thinking aspirationally, but this is amongst the reasons I get excited for this space, that like if government starts to think about it that way, right, there's ways for government to build in all the consumer protections, build in incentives as we've touched upon, but also begin to reward people. I mean, you know, I think you know this story, but I remember, you know, Airbnb, year or two out from going public, you know, I think it was from me, actually, we sent a letter to the SEC, and I remember doing meetings there, where we asked whether we could make equity available to our hosts right. in advance of going public. 
you know, and we're told, you know, because the rule, I think it's 500, you know, where once you're over a certain number of people who have equity is considered a security that we couldn't do it. And I had countless meetings where I would make the argument that look at, you know, our host, particularly a core subset of them, you know, are disproportionately responsible for the generation of the wealth that is going to take place here. And, you know, SEC, you know, refused to even really engage, right. I think, in a, in a conversation with a seriousness of purpose around it. Other than just pointing to that, you know, their the rule and the how we test and, right. you know, these various things that exist from the 1930s, you know, long before there was any type of an economic model, like a sharing economy model, Airbnb goes public, you know, I think it goes up to hundred billion that day. You remember the number, you know, that, that day you had a bunch of banks that really put, you know, right. relatively very little at risk, you know, who end up making a well, bunch of money clients, on that, right? And why should that be the case? Why can't we come up with a better system? Why couldn't those hosts have been able to participate in the upside that they were responsible for helping to create and generate? And so I just use that as, you know, crypto actually can help. It's actually an underlying technology that can make that possible and the tokens play that role. But to really get that, you would need government to really begin to think about this and imagine ways that you could distribute economics in a fundamentally different way. And as I say all that, I want to be clear. Like, I think that there's going to be a spectrum of this activity. I mean, look, there are some people, and I'm big believers in them, you know, who believe, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, like the entire world and the economy is going to be, you know, a crypto-based economy. There are others who think it's going to happen in a couple of narrow places. I tend to be right. somewhere in the middle. Like, there's, I think, going to be a spectrum of stuff. There will be some spaces that lend itself to this so that people can participate more. And there'll be some where, you know, they will benefit from being a little, just a little bit less centralized. I mean, one response to what you're saying is that there are laws about like sort of, you know, scams, confidence schemes and stuff. And like, why do you need a particular one to ferret at them out on crypto? Or, you know, it's sort of like crypto creates this level of like, it complexifies everything, you know, it makes, so it makes it like, I mean... You're talking about sort of validators, right? Getting tokens. You're sort of like lending your brand. Or someone building a project, right? right? Like on a this idea that a brand validator is, you know, it's just promotion for a token sort of going up in some way by lending your brand to it. Yeah. I mean, look, if there people have different views right. of brand validators, right. Right? right? Should you be able to participate right. in the economics of something that you're lending your name to? Could you change the advertising model out there? I mean, you know, we could take this any number of ways. To me, it's a little bit less like, yeah, if you put really strict, you know, there's strict guidelines around what you can and cannot validate, you know, as a brand yeah. validator, right? And, you know, you didn't have that for FTX, right? And so I think building that in, but I also think that's a little bit of sort of, and I know this is not really directed at you, but it's missing the broader piece here, which is in the absence of regulations, you are not being able to take advantage of something that could have a pretty significant impact, you know, on our financial system and the economics and how they are distributed. Yeah. I mean, I've written this, but you know, if you look at the underlying technology of blockchain, it's inherently progressive technology, <laughs> right? It redistributes economics so it goes to the people whose labor are responsible for it. Hmm. It's decentralized, meaning there is not one centralized authoritarian entity that is driving it. It requires community engagement to make decisions. I mean, if you sort of look at the, right. 
you know, progressive. I mean, it rewards capital. Values. I, I yes. will say it will, the other piece of it is like early money in sort of tends to get multiplied when things are going well. I mean, WorldCoin is like a fascinating example where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we're going to sort of assign money to a person. Yeah. I mean, it's all sort of how it's constructed. Yeah. I mean, look, here's a really simple version of it to think about. And I use this one sometimes, you know, with elected officials, just because I think it brings it home and makes it really easy. We've talked about some other examples, you know, remittances, I think is an obvious one. But just think about how art works, right? Which is, you know, an artist does a painting. I'm just going to make up numbers here. You know, they sell it to a gallery for a thousand dollars, like a local gallery. That local gallery then sells it to a bigger gallery, maybe for ten thousand dollars. You know, maybe eventually that art really takes on you know, significant value. Maybe you actually have an art house that corners the market on this particular artist and creates an artificial supply and demand, you know, dynamic. But that artist doesn't have, you know, a retained interest in that piece of work. And then take that example and apply it to all other, you know, could be writing, right? It could be books. It could be even, you know, and this is pretty far-fetched, but since we're having, you know, this conversation... Imagine if you're someone who's a carpenter and you're working on a house. You could get paid a salary, but maybe you also get to retain an interest in that house every time yeah. it gets sold. You get to participate. Right. Again, these are fairly far-fetched, and right. uh, and there's a lot between now and you know some of those examples for it to happen. But this does create that a way right. to sort of re-envision how you think about this. In the same way, right, when you move from an agricultural age into industrial age, how economics, even getting from feudalism to capitalism required a complete re-envisioning of how money and currency would work and right. how the economy would work. Yeah, I mean, I feel like on the intuition or on sort of the thought experiment level, yeah. crypto does great. I mean, I loved the idea yeah, of DAOs. And this is a challenge, right? You could do these I thought love, experiments, you could the do all these today. great tokens. <laughs> I think some of the lesson is like, you still need great institutions around them. You know what I mean? It's like- I think you need to create trust around right, them. Right, exactly. Uh, right, and look at the space, you know, it, it's interesting because there's such an engineering culture to it. Like they end up using lexicon that maybe is not, doesn't necessarily work as well for the general public. Like crypto itself is a scary name. Trustless, even though it's actually being used in a positive way where you're not relying on a centralized authority. For a normal person, like trustless doesn't sound like a great idea, right? And so, you know, some of the language and even lexicon around this, because it comes from such a deep engineering, you know, mathematical type of background. Zero, you know, this is a, you know, a tech, within crypto that's being developed right now, zero knowledge proofs, hmm. which I actually think is a potentially game changer in terms of that utility cases. But even in the name, like zero knowledge proof, that doesn't sound like a great thing when in fact, but it really is actually helping to resolve the age old conflict that has existed between can you have privacy and can you have security? Hmm. Can you have privacy? Can you have identity? Zero knowledge proofs actually solve for that, but that's not what the name is, right? And right. so people hear that initially and, and it causes concerns. Changing gears, the Republican primary and I guess the Democratic primary such that it exists. I don't know. Any stakes for crypto specifically? And then just given your experience, any hot takes more broadly? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, stake, no pun intended, obviously. Look, I think my belief as someone who spent a lot of time in government politics and policy is that, you know, in democracies, politics drives legislation Legislation ultimately impacts regulations. How those regulations are interpreted, you know, becomes, you know, how the legal process works. But it all begins foundationally, if you think about that as a pyramid, with politics. Yeah. And 
I think it's going to be a real challenge. I always am an optimist and believe that cup is a quarter full or half full that will get legislation done this year, but it's hard, right? It's right. hard to get anything passed. It's hard to get anything passed in an election year, hard to get something passed that's as complex as, you know, as crypto, right? So while optimistic, I am looking beyond the 2024 right. election. And where I'm going with this is in a world where, at least in this country, where there are more people who own crypto than hold a union card. And I'm all for the people having, more people having union cards tomorrow than have them today. So, <laughs> but there are more people who own crypto than own a union card. Right. Who those people are, you know, disproportionately young, disproportionately people of color, the crypto digital asset, the people who hold digital assets in this country could be an incredibly interesting voter cohort if they begin to understand and actually vote at some level or cryptos amongst the issues they care about right. as they listen to these candidates. I mean, you think of a place like Georgia. You can make the argument that Georgia, maybe Arizona, are the two most important states to determine who the next president is going mm. to be. There's a subset of about five of these states, but let's look at Georgia. I mean, Georgia is a place where you know, that one in five you know, voters across the country actually over-indexes even more in a place like Georgia. And if the presidential candidates from both parties begin to understand that there are voters out there who are in fact crypto voters, right. who will vote one way or the other, or at least their decision-making will be impacted one way or the other by where a candidate is on crypto, if the sector space is able to do that in the context of the 2024 election, I do think that has a huge impact on where the policy goes. Again, politics drives right. policy, right? If both parties emerge from 2024, knowing that there's a crypto voter out there who matters right. and who will respond to what they're doing on issues, then suddenly I think crypto ends up being in a different place when it comes to how the legislation and regulations right. will play themselves I mean, out going It's forward. sort of the classic type of issue where no politician is like defining their political principles and identity around being anti-crypto. Like they didn't I don't think most of them really care one way or the other right so, now. So, so if suddenly there's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, a vocal minority yes. that really cares about it, it's a very swayable issue. Yes. On the other hand, like, do... I mean, I get people want their coins to go up in value, yeah. but, you know, are people that emotional about their, like, crypto holding? It's also, and I'm sure you deal with this a lot, unfortunately for crypto, a very anti sort of, or at least the origins of it were sort of anti-government, which means often can mean anti-government yeah, yeah. involvement. So that it's like, it's a hard crowd to get to go I lobby think, their legislator. Yeah. So I think, let's break that down a little bit. I think you're right. Like, I think where this emerged, or, and we talked about this at the very beginning, like a libertarian you know, element to it. That said, as we've talked about, you know, the majority of the people who hold crypto voted for Biden, and again, younger people of color. And if you think that there's roughly 57, 60 million people who hold crypto in the US, if 5% of those people engage politically on it, that still represents one of the biggest political constituencies right. out there. And I mean, you're very adroit in terms of your observation that like, if it's a vocal minority of two, three, four, five million people on an issue where politicians don't like, have a strong view one way or the other, right. and all they're being really asked to do is to pass regulations to help protect consumers. Right. And for a politician, that, that's a pretty easy place to go to. Now, can the sector, can the industry, do these people get excited? Do they get enthused about this? Like, right. I think that's, you know, that's what needs to happen between now and Election Day in November of 2024. And if the space can do that, then I think it puts itself in a different position. 
Do you have a view on Vivek? Have you? I mean, he's tech aligned, or have you guys talked to him? Well, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I'm still a hardcore, <laughs> deep blue Democrat. I do think that you know the generational aspect is interesting. I mean, you know, as someone who's been in politics, right? You know, he has an yeah. interesting cohort that he can appeal to. I do wonder, you know, how much can you grow, you know, beyond that, even within a Republican right. field. I thought. I want to be clear. I disagreed substantially with virtually everything that right. he said, and and you know have very strong views on some of the positions he took in that debate, and he has subsequently taken right. on a variety of issues. As a pure, how he handled himself on the debate stage, you know, when he had a lot coming at him, I thought the fact that he went in there from the just just pure like analyzing from a political right. consultant perspective. Right. Like he didn't go into that debate thinking I was going to play defense. He went into that debate right. thinking I was going to play offense. You know, and I think some of the others on that stage potentially could have taken some lessons from that. Right. Look, I came into crypto because I, I'm ultimately an optimist. I do believe that this is an incredible country. You know, I personally have benefited from the opportunities that exist in this country. I came right. from a middle class, working class background, and to end up where I am today is only possible because of this country, and I think this country has its challenges, but it's still a remarkable place. It is still an amazing place. I sit here in San Francisco, right? We talk about, you know, what's going on in San Francisco. San Francisco is still an awesome city. Right. Like, you walk a couple blocks in San Francisco, right. you'll end up in conversations on where the world is going that nothing right. in the world can compare to. I right. traveled around the world over the course of the right. summer. Nothing compares to what's going on in San Francisco. So it's a long-winded way of saying, like, I don't think this country is in a dark place. I think, like, any time we have challenges and we need to address them and we're better off addressing them collectively and we do need to improve our politics. But I fundamentally and just at a ground level just have a completely different view on where we are as a country. I find covering like business, mm -hmm. like businesses have an incentive in some ways to treat the parties as like the same or like, mm -hmm. or just like they're two entities, like we're trying to yeah, win them inputs, both right? over, like whatever. Yeah. Like on the other hand, if you actually like pay attention to politics. It's like, I, I, you know, feel like they operate totally differently. Like Democrats are legitimately trying to govern and like are a serious party. Like don't enable their voters and say the election was stolen and go anyway, I could go on and on. Like, I feel like they're very different. I feel like as somebody, you know, even though I'm like a reporter with opinions, it's still like, you know, I want people to feel represented. I'm always going back and forth from I'm not, I think you get what, like I wrote about founders fund the other day, yep. like as part of a sort of clinical description of each fund. And I'm like, they're conservative. They are upset about DEI. And like, and I feel like they were annoyed with me and I'm like, but this is what you guys are saying. Like, I, I don't understand. Like it's hard for me to understand as a non-conservative, this is what you're talking about. Or do you not want to be celebrated? So it's very hard, like as sort of a real sort of Democrat. I can, I could understand sort of the old school Republicans worrying about tax issues, but like, I don't know. How do you deal with like sort of the MAGA type Republicans as somebody whose like job in some ways is to engage with them when you put your democratic hat on and it's like, they're unconscionable. Yeah. It's a, look at this, a question that I think so many of us in this country are struggling with and challenged by you know, I do think it's important to understand and recognize that there is, you know, a significant population in this country that are profoundly unhappy. And, you know, while I think that objectively speaking, this country is and, you know, people are, should be blessed to be in this country and feel great about it and feel great about the American experiment. Generally, you have to understand that people and recognize and appreciate that 
that people are unhappy and there's reasons why they are unhappy. And I think, you know, be willing to accept that at least some of them are unhappy for real reasons. I think there are some, and again, my politics here, who are unhappy for reasons I do not think are legitimate. And I think there is, and this, you know, this is sort of woven in through this entire conversation. I do think that there is a interesting opportunity, particularly for Democrats, if they can really begin to think about how can we actually begin to talk to some of these voters, because they do have, I mean, if you're in parts of this country, right, you do have real profound concerns about your economic opportunity, you know, the fairness of the system. And frankly, I think some issues around what you've been told for 30, 40, 50 years that has not necessarily right. played out in what was represented to you and not feeling that either party is effectively addressing it. And then that allows you to default, right. you know, these, some of the positions that people are taking. Yeah. But I do think Democrat, like I'll say this, I think Demo my friends and I have this conversation a lot at dinner parties in San Francisco. I think it's worth it to go spend some time in these parts of the country and understand, you know, what people are going through and think about that. I agree with what you're saying in the sense that it's easier to have empathy, you know, with Republicans if you think about sort of the regular Republican voter mm -hmm. who like, you know, yeah, in some cases has legitimate reasons, even if they're reasons I don't find legitimate, maybe yep. I find their situation sympathetic. Yes. I feel like the challenge in Silicon Valley, though, is like the Republicans that the elite Republicans we have to deal with are sort of often the ones happy with sort of the game of the Republican Party, which is fire up populism. We want low taxes and low regulation. And so you're dealing with like sort of a disingenuous sort of political ideology, though I, you know, they often don't admit that. First of all, I think there's, there was an element of that was part of the Republican compact for a long time, right? Like you know, business would work with right. the more extreme elements of the party because that would get you 50 plus 1%. Extreme, they'd throw some things to the extreme elements and they would get their low taxes, right? right. I think that has now been co-opted as any number of people have written about and spoken to. I thought where you were going, but I, what do you mean I'll take it. What co-opted? What's that? Co-opted. Co-opted, meaning that, you know, for a, there was a time period really, you know, post-World War II up until, you know, through the Bush administration, roughly, right. where... The business Republicans, called the Mike Pence Republicans, right. maybe we're in um, charge, oh, right? Yeah. Would work with other elements and you know of the Republican Party. I mean, Pence is a little bit of a combination of both, but you know maybe the evangelical wing of the Republican Party, and they would say certain things about cultural issues, and you know by combining those two forces again, this is you know, this is a generalization. Right. Be able to win an election, win a presidential campaign. You know, national security was also part of that. That was right. the trifecta, right? Lower taxes, cultural right. issues and the military, and they would get their lower taxes. And they did. That's regulations. I, I guess and I'm saying, has that really, is, yeah. yeah. The more extreme element now actually has, you know, controlled the whole the part, yeah, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. but where I thought you were going, and maybe if I could be permitted sure. to take it here a little sure. bit, is what, what gets me is there'll be people, particularly in San Francisco, but really the whole Bay Area, who have been live incredible lives with incredible benefits and incredible resources that over human history are like historic right. in terms of what, and, you know, amongst the first to, you know, complain about what's going on in San Francisco or the first to complain about, you know, what's happening in San Francisco. And like, yeah, there are things that legitimate issues to be concerned about right. in San Francisco, but like, you know, the people of the city have voted these folks into office. And if you want to constructively engage, there's a lot of ways you could really constructively right. engage. Right. And like, I'll share someone who I'm like a huge fan of, like Chris Larson, 
you know, founder of E-Trade, Elon, you know, at Ripple. Yeah. He's a tech guy in San Francisco. Like he spends enormous both resources and time like on the ground working to improve the city. Right. Like he's a great example of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of grief for this, but like, like the people who have the least to worry about, at least to be concerned right. about, you know, I mean, look, I'll, you know, another person I think does an amazing job is like a Ron Conway. I mean, Ron spends his time, his effort, his treasure, you know, on trying to improve things and commits himself to those things, you know, and is not on podcasts or X, you know, complaining about right. things. So that, that's where I thought you were taking this. I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, there, there is sort of, if you're so mad about San Francisco, have a constructive vision for it. I mean, we saw, I mean, the New York Times had that fascinating story about, you know, Mike Moritz and others, yep. Mark Andreessen supporting sort of an $800 million project to build a city, I think, south of Solano County or something. Yeah. I mean, yep. that I that, that sort of yep. straddles the boundary of what you're saying. It's like, yep. it's constructive, but it's sort of opt out or like, I don't know, do you have a strong view on that? sort of thing. Yeah, look, I think there's a spectrum of people who are involved in that. I think there right. are some who are probably more constructive than some others. But I do, like I, like, I guess where I come down is like San Francisco and the Bay Area has contributed to the success all these folks have had, including myself. Right. Like I would not have had the success to the extent I've had any if I had not been out here. And, and I think you can be a constructive part of the solution. And I think there's right. ways to do that. And it's a lot more than putting out a tweet. Right. All right, I'll give you the last word. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed it. I hope we get to do it again. Yeah. It's awesome. And let's make sure we actually get that coffee in person. Yeah, I'd love to. Great. Okay, man. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's my episode with Chris Lahane. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Annie Wen, our producing intern, Young Chomsky for the wonderful theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Thanks so much. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.